welcome to the DTB podcast for August 2020, volume 58, number eight. My name's David Zachary. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, I think it should say that last month I had some microphone envy. James, you'd upgraded to some Marantz gizmo, which sounded much better than my built-in one. So this month I'm trying a new microphone and we'll see what it sounds like. We're gradually trying to improve our quality on these podcasts. And as with last month, we're recording from our homes. I'm just outside Chichester. James is in Newbury and Letitia is fading us up and down from London. It's a lovely sunny afternoon on South Coast. How is it 60 miles further north, James? It's dull and wet, but there's some very golden honey tones coming from your new microphone, David, if I may be so bold. It was worth the investment. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Let's start with the editorial. We collaborated on this one, uh, which meant you wrote most of it and and I did a bit. And it talks about a virtual revolution in general practice. James, do you want to say a bit more? Yes, I I just felt, or we we both did, I think we both felt that we needed to highlight the significant change that has occurred in general practice since the COVID-19 pandemic and the move towards virtual working. And we just sort of wanted, I think, to A, discuss that uh, and some of the, perhaps the positives of that, but also some of the, the possible issues that might arise. I think... I certainly, as a GP for 30 years, and therefore perhaps a little bit of a Luddite in this, have had some concerns that there's been a lot of noise out there from uh, certain areas saying, this is marvellous, this is the way forward for general practice. And I just felt it was important that we just, you know, raised a flag to say that actually face-to-face consultations still have an important place in the role of medicine. And, you know, we, we need to find the best of both worlds, really. So we're now, what, 106, 107 days into uh, kind of this, this new world. What's your sense of, of what works well and what has been less good with the kind of online consultations that you've been running? Well, I think, I think and I, I'm speaking from someone who literally got back to work after annual leave yesterday and is still reeling from it a little bit. Uh, I think the big issue for the professions now is trying to make some sort of sense out of their day at the moment. The structure has gone, the sort of fabric on which we hung our working day, the face-to-face consultations, the phone calls, the practice notes, the the sort of background work, if you like, that's all been thrown in the air now. And I think most practices are still doing entirely telephone or video triaging and then seeing patients who they feel need to be seen. And I think this has led to an enormous increase in accessibility for patients. And I think as practices, we are trying to work out how do we maintain that access? Let's not hide back behind our walls, but how can we still provide that sort of access and yet not just burn ourselves out? Because it just got very, very busy since I've been away for two weeks. Um, I've come back and yes, it's as busy as it has ever been in general practice. And that's busy with you know, routine general practice work or is this additional work? This is, this is, I think the difficulty with this is that, let's, let's be honest, if you were a patient who perhaps felt a bit poorly or had a poorly child at home, 
six months ago, you would ask yourself, uh, shall I try and phone through to the surgery this morning? It's always going to be hard work and I'm going to have to hang around and then I'll probably be offered a duty doctor appointment later this afternoon and be told that, you know, I might have to sit and wait for that. And it means I've got to go down to the surgery this afternoon. It might be at a time when I should be picking up the children from school or maybe other issues. And I might have to wait an hour. And, and now, of course, you, you've phoned the surgery and we offer you um, a call back from the GP and you can get on with your work. We all have mobile phones now, so you can do exactly what you need to do. And the GP will phone you back and discuss the issue with you without any need for you to have to commit any sort of time or or sort of difficult commitment, if you like. And I think that's where we're, that's where we're finding the issue. So the numbers of calls coming in is just got, you know, enormous. And is that also heightened by people thinking, what well, I might not have worried about six months ago, or it might be coronavirus related, therefore I will, I've got added anxiety, so I will then make that call anyway. I, I think, well, I mean, obviously we're in West Berkshire where we've had now very little coronavirus for a couple of weeks, about month now. So actually coronavirus issues are simply not there. We have one or two patients who suffered coronavirus who are still poorly from it in the sense of having breathing difficulties and they're taking up a lot of time particularly as there was nothing to offer them until recently no i think i think the difficulty we've now got is we've got patients who've got lumps and bumps that perhaps they've ignored for three months who are now thinking i better get this looked at and what about feedback from patients do they do they like this new way of working or yes i mean they're loving it and to be honest i think they they love the fact that you know in the past they would phone up and might have to wait three weeks for an appointment now they you know we are providing booked appointments increasingly but they're usually the same week um but but more often than not they get a call back from their doctor later the same day so in, in some ways you're providing a perfect service now it is a it is a perfect service but but it's got we mentioned this a little bit in our editorial there there are some risks assessing patients over the phone is definitely riskier you have to carry more risk you know and and if you decide that you need to see this patient you then have a double jeopardy because you're looking at your list of phone calls that you have to make later you might have 20 more to make. You've got several hours left of daylight, if you like. And so if I book this patient in to see me later, I'm going to have less time then to talk to the others on the phone. And so you begin to have this issue where you, do I still practice as safely as I can so I can go home feeling relaxed that I've not held anything that I shouldn't have held? Or do you duck and dive a bit more than you perhaps would have done in the past to get through the day and that's the risk and that's what GPs unfortunately have always done. Other professions seem to be much better at saying no it takes me 30 minutes to do an assessment I'm going to take 30 minutes to do an assessment and you know people just have to go on a waiting list. GPs have always had the approach that if someone wants me to call them I need to call them and I've just got to get on and do it. And so this, in some ways, this has been an experiment in in how to change general practice and how to run uh, consultations any outcomes yet have we got any research to to tell us whether this great experiment has improved outcomes or or made things worse i don't know about this particular situation i mean obviously we do talk about some of the the evidence that exists prior to this around video consultations and what they're good at and what they're not good at so i think i think it's going to be a really fascinating time to see 
what models come out of this because I think there will be some very different models and that will determine be determined by the sort of population you serve you know I think if we were serving a student young student population you know or even many many of the sort of city populations I could see us moving to a total phone triage system but if you have a sort of much older population with a lot more long-term conditions I think they're going to need more face-to-face -face, more time with their doctor so I think it'll be very interesting to see what models come out over the next year or so and last question as a practice where are you going next with this what's what's the next stage for, for you it's a very pertinent question that I think we are looking towards other professions as um, helping us with this. So obviously primary care networks were set up last year and we already now have social prescribers working in the practice and clinical pharmacists. And the next big professional body that will be joining us next year are paramedics. And I think a lot of doctors are saying, this may be the answer to this conundrum. How do we deal with the on the day demand from people who are sick or believe themselves to be sick? And how do we deal with the day-to-day -day bread and butter outpatient work, if you like, of long-term conditions? And I think the answer is to use professionals such as paramedics for that on-the-day demand. And that will hopefully free us up to do more of the long-term conditions without that sense of always having to look over your shoulder at what's to be done today. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, our main article this month focuses on osteoporosis and in particular the evidence for uh, vitamin D and calcium in older people. Uh, very grateful to Ian Reid from Auckland for this one. Key issues for you? Key issues is that if you read one article this year, this is the article you should read. It is a, one of those articles that will change your therapeutics for the better. So thank you, Ian. This is really a, a really great article. And it's a shame we can't actually let him introduce this himself because I'm sure he'd make a better job of it than I will. But this is an article which really lifts the lid on the automatic prescribing of calcium and vitamin D in patients with osteoporosis. And I think we've all in general practice and I think in rheumatology and in, in other areas who deal with patients with um, osteoporosis. We've all struggled with the relationship between vitamin D and fractures and calcium supplementation and fractures. And, and you know, every week there seems to be another bit of research that suggests that vitamin D doesn't work or it does work and calcium does improve risks or doesn't, you know, and I, and I think this lifts the lid on all that and basically points out that we don't need to give people calcium supplements. And that's quite, that's quite a bold statement. Um, what, what was his argument for not needing calcium? Well, so basically he points out that, first of all, in the Western diets, uh, we have plenty of calcium in our diet, but actually our body is more than capable of coping, even with intake down to about 300 milligrams a day. If you've got osteomalacia, true osteomalacia, so this is vitamin D deficiency to a point where you get demineralization of the bone, then yes, you know, you give vitamin D and you can give calcium. But for osteoporosis, for those patients who've got osteoporosis where we have, you know, just automatically given people the chewy white chalky tablets in addition to their bisphosphonates, 
that is unnecessary. It has no impact on outcomes at all. And what for me was particularly helpful was that the way he approached the article and separating out the calcium and vitamin D issues and then highlighting the effects on both bone mineral density and fractures and then going on to talk about co-prescribing those osteoporosis treatments it was a very easy way of following the arguments through from start to finish absolutely and i think one of the dangers we've had in this whole debate is that we've we've sort of we've connected vitamin d and calcium together as if they are somehow some sort of synergistic combination and i think what he quite nicely points out is that you know they have got very different roles and yes that there is some connection with them but actually when it comes to management of osteoporosis they you know they're working in very different ways and the needs are very different and the perhaps the most important thing is that you know there are adverse effects from using calcium supplements in patients and and that's the thing as well so it's not just that you're not providing any necessary benefit for patients but actually also you may be causing harms and what i hadn't picked up on and obviously if, if you're deep into this field and it's what you follow is the change in clinical guidelines over the years and their emphasis has decreased on calcium supplementation absolutely so in 2017 national osteoporosis guidance group was saying that anyone whose calcium intake was um 700 milligrams or less you know, there was a thing that that was emphasized that you should take supplements and now it's changed to a supplementation should be considered in this group. You know, and I think that's down to a lot of those big studies that have demonstrated some concern about calcium. The recent trial that showed that there was an unexpected increased risk in myocardial infarction in patients who were being given supplements. And I think there was a bit of a fad at one point that in particularly women, you know, there was a, there was a sort of feeling that if you were a woman and you were nearing uh, the menopause, it was a good thing to take calcium supplementation. And yet really there's been no evidence for that. And again, helpfully finishes with his recommendations for both calcium and vitamin D. And of course, having, having discussed the calcium, obviously his um, recommendations are basically don't use Yes, I mean, he's, he does mention there are some particular issues with certain anabolic drugs and when you use denusumab in patients with renal impairment. So there are some little catches where perhaps calcium supplementation is important. But actually, for the average patient that we see in general practice who's either in a healthy you know, community dwelling, as he puts it, in other words, it's living in the community, or even those frail living in the community you know, they don't need calcium supplementations. And even those who are institutionalized and living in homes, they really don't require calcium supplementation if their diet is anything just simply normal. So really calcium, you know, we should be doing away with the old chalky big tablets of calcium and vitamin D and being a bit more thoughtful and saying, right, we've got a patient in front of us. Do they need to be taking vitamin D? And the answer, of course, is actually almost everyone needs to be taking vitamin D if, if they're adults and particularly if they are, you know, living in a, a community dwelling with low sunlight exposure, then that is a must. But actually the whole issue of calcium now, we should just put that to bed, really. OK, thank you very much. Uh, good plug for that article. And then finally, a case report. A uh, bit of a strange one this month. What was this? 
So this was um, a case of a young man who developed, in effect, a serotonin syndrome. He became had a hyperkinetic reaction to dihydrocodium that he was given for an ear infection. And I have to say, I, f- I find serotonin syndrome very interesting. So I, I was always, I'm always interested to, to read about this. I think we miss serotonin syndrome a lot in general practice. And this was quite interesting because he was taking CBD, cannabinoid, as well. So there's a discussion about did that somehow interact with dihydrocodium and, and cause this particular reaction. And the symptoms he exhibited? So he developed twitching and restlessness. And in the article, they talk about various different, there's a couple of criteria that you can use for detecting serotonin syndrome. And there's Stoneback's criteria, um, which is the one I think most of us who are interested in this subject have heard about. But they um, suggest that there's a new set of criteria. I think they call it Hunter's rules, but that which, which much more carefully looks at clonus and tremor and hyperreflexia as being typical symptoms of serotonin toxicity. So it's, it's another one of these really interesting things, which I think as GPs, we've got to be on the lookout for. SSRIs, opioids, you know, we're using a lot of those these days. And these two drugs can induce these hyperkinetic type reactions, these serotonin syndromes of agitation, shivering, tremor, fever, you know, in coordination. And I think sometimes we, we, people get agitated and a bit sort of anxious and we think it's their anxiety and actually they're having a serotonin type reaction What we need to deal with. Uh, and maybe that's uh, a good plug for us to think about uh, an article in the future looks at uh, serotonin syndrome and uh, just questions whether it's more common than we than we actually think absolutely i think we did cover it about 10 years ago he says i've just i I think we did but i I think you're right i think it is a subject that continues to surprise people and i've had patients who have been seen in casualty and had all kinds of tests and investigations and no one has clocked that actually they've got serotonin syndrome and I think that we, we need to be much more vigilant about all types of adverse drug reactions. But this is one that just seems to, people just seem to miss this very often. Okay, well, let's dig out the old article and uh, refresh it and find... Polish somebody, it down. And, polish uh, it down and find somebody who <laughs> can uh, give us the latest, latest take on serotonin syndrome. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, listening to this podcast you can find all our articles at our or on our website at dtb.bmj.com if you enjoy listening to our podcasts please consider leaving us a comment or a rating on the itunes site and you can find a link to the dtb podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast and we hope you'll be able to join us for september's dtb podcast thanks for listening Mm -hmm.